Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Okay, hello everybody. This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored. We are doing our first big long-form interview uh, with one of the most influential politicians uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, particularly in the Labour Party, a trailblazer, uh, someone who no doubt changed politics in Britain uh, and in the Labour Party um, forever, uh, and who's had a really long and interesting career. And I'm talking about John McDonnell MP, former shadow chancellor of the Exchequer for the Labour Party, uh, a key component of the, the Corbyn project and the Corbyn years, both in the campaign and as Labour leader, and the Member of Parliament for Hayes and Harlington. John, how are you keeping? Very good, Ali. Good to see you. It's very, very good to see you. Uh, listen, I'm, we're going to touch on a number of things, uh, but before we get into the politics, uh, I would love for people to get to know the man, John McDonnell, uh, because, um, as many will know, you were my neighbouring MP for a while, someone I looked up to um, and someone who brought me into the Labour Party, so uh, you're going to have to bear that responsibility for, for quite a long time. Um, but you've got this perception in the media, I think, uh, particularly in the right wing media of being this sort of hard man st- strategist. Um, and I think when it comes to intellect, they're absolutely right. But uh, as it pertains to the man itself, I think um, the man I know is very, very different. So I would love for you to kind of start us off by telling us the early days of John McDonnell. Oh, okay. This will bore people. Rigid, Ali. Are you sure you won't do this? <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I, I, I think you underestimate how much people would love okay. to hear about. I'll do a quick potted history. Little I? John in in Liverpool. Yeah, <laughs> I background is this. I was I was born in Liverpool, 1951. So I'm quite elderly now, 72. Um, I was born in just off Scotland Road in in Liverpool, which again, there's been lots of sort of sociological studies about it was one of the, the worst slums in Europe. I, I, I read all this stuff and I just remind people we just called it home basically. Uh, my dad was on the docks, the pool docker, his dad before him was as well and my mum was a cleaner and also used to do things like teaching people knitting and things like this. Mm. All covered. Anyway, so we. I was born in Liverpool, uh, Irish Catholic family, very traditional Irish Catholic family um and then we move south the, the story of me moving south i sort of dig out the reasons for it my dad in the second world war was conscripted like everybody else he was a sergeant in the royal anglian regiment at one point um showed forrester's person he was stationed in uh, norfolk before he was then sent off to germany and he met my mum in norfolk um she was she was during the war she was a welder she was a welder doing machine guns and stuff like that and also an arp one and they met so from welding war. to knitting is where she moved yeah <laughs> it's it's interesting isn't it I, I, you discover these stories much later and i wish my mum and dad are dead now and i wish i had the opportunity to talk to them a bit more about what happened to them during that period anyway they got married and then um, after the war we lived in liverpool but my dad, it's like the docks. The docks were being run down. He was an active trade unionist, difficult getting work. And so we moved south and we moved to where my mum came from in Great Yarmouth. And we, <clears throat> excuse me, we, I was brought up um, as a teenager in, in Great Yarmouth and um, went to school there. But in, in the sort of Irish Catholic family tradition, <laughs> someone has to become the priest or a nun <laughs> in, in every generation sort of thing. So... I 
I, I was a fervent, I was quite a devout Catholic, going to Mass regularly and serving on the altar. So it sort of naturally fell to me to, mm. um, the parish priest asked my parents when I was about 11, was I, they thought I had a vocation. And um, the tradition then was that you'd be sent off to a, a, a Catholic school, a, a, a minor seminary. I got sent off to um, uh, De La Salle Brothers College in Ipswich. And I joke about it, but it's true that they taught a sort of form of Sado Christianity, if you like. They did knock you about physically. Um, <laughs> but, but was that, that was, a... was that with the idea of becoming a priest? Yes, that was it, really. Yeah, that was it. The intention was you'd do, you'd do a few years there, then you'd go on to seminary and then become a priest. Yeah. So, so in some parallel that... universe somewhere, there's Father John McDonnell who's <laughs> serving in Ipswich. Well, the, the funny thing is that people forget that tradition in in Irish families and Catholic families um, where someone would go into the religious orders in each generation. Mm -hmm. um, so I went off to a Catholic boarding school and the intention was then yeah, I'd become a, a Catholic priest. But by the time I got to sort of 15 and 16, um, I discovered I hadn't got a vocation. I discovered girls <laughs> and also a bit of Marxism as well. So at that point, I just said, look, this isn't for me. And I went back to the local grammar school that I was I was uh, qualified for. And after that, got a bit disillusioned with education. I went on the shop floor and I toured around England just working in different production worker jobs, um, doing all sorts of different things, making beds at Silent Night, doing TVs at Phillips Mullards in Paddyham up in, in the north. And then eventually I got married very early. I was 20 when I got married and my then wife said, look, you need to you need to think about your future. And I did A-levels at night school, then at Burnley Tech, and came down to Brunel, which we both know, love and admire. Um, and I went to Brunel to study recent history, po um, politics, government and economics, a whole range of subjects in my degree. So and the reason I went to Brunel is because it was a um, sandwich course. You could work for six months and then study for six mm -hmm. months. And that's why why did you why did you pick politics? So I'm, what, what I'm curious about is you went from the semin the sort of mm -hmm. the journey to, from being to being a priest and then girls and Marxism. Is that so is reading Marx the first sort of well, introduction into politics? Well, there was always politics in my family because my dad was an active trade unionist. Right. OK. And so he was a branch secretary of the Transport General Workers Union with a union that went on to form Unite. He was on the docks, but then he became a bus driver. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was the branch secretary of the local T&G branch. And I'd help mm -hmm. him, actually. I'd help him with the, some of that work as well. So, so your dad was really the source of the politics. politics. was always there. So your dad was the source of the politics, really, uh, from an early To a certain extent. Age. We always had discussions about what was going on in the world. Um, he was active in trade union work, and my mum was... Uh, um, extremely interested in, in the world as well so we had those sort of conversations mm -hmm. really and can um, i ask so you know a lot of my generation won't know but being an irish family would have been tough in those days because of the the, the tensions that existed did it was there anything like that in in either liverpool or ipswich or anything you were what were the challenges at that time actually it was later um interesting enough at that point in time in liverpool but you know, the, the Liverpool was almost, uh, you know, there's more Irish in Liverpool than there were in Dublin. It was a, <laughs> that sort of um, community. Um, but that was, that was the journey in, right? That was the way people got to England, was through Liverpool. Yeah. 
That's exactly it. They came across on the boats, literally, and started work wherever they could. And I always remind people it was the Irish that, in many ways, built this, Irish migrants that built this country in terms mm -hmm. of the roads, the, the buildings, the hospitals, and all the rest. The Irish women that staffed the hospitals as nurses. So made a huge contribution. It was later when uh, be, being associated with Ireland was in, was difficult, and that was during the Troubles in the late, later in the 70s, late 60s and into the 70s. But yeah, so anyway, I, what happened with me, I came down, I was always interested in politics because of the family background, came down, studied, wanted to study things I was interested in. So I did that at Brunel, worked at Brunel uh, on a sandwich course, six months on, six months off. During that period, my then wife and I um, took over, uh, became house parents of a local children's home um, for children that were being taken into care and preparing them to return home or to be fostered, that sort of thing. And then when I left university, um, I applied for a job. Everyone in my year at Brunel wanted to be, wanted to go into politics or be a trade union organiser or something like that. I, I wanted to be a manager of the co-op. <laughs> I wanted to demonstrate that the co-op could be as good as Marks and Spencer's <laughs> or any other capitalist yeah. organisation, but on co-op principles. But I couldn't get a job with them. <laughs> I think I was... It's not I too late. Sort of, I'd overpower them with ideas about cooperation. <laughs> anyway, so... I How old were you at this point? Because you went in later, right? Yeah, but I would be... Um, let me think. I went in, I'd be about 24, 25. Like that. Right. And so you couldn't get the job at co-op. Um, where did you end up after that? Oh, I applied for a job at National Union of Mine Workers. Right. Um, and I got a job there as the assistant head of the social insurance department, which sounds really grand, but there were only three people in the department, <laughs> the head, me, right. and the, the, the woman who right. did the... But that's the mining unit, right? So you're at the front line of, of the worker struggle, was, if you will. Yeah. I'm dealing with... My, the, the My role at the NUM was dealing with all the... In the social impacts of working with the mining industry, the issues with regard to health and safety, mm. um, industrial injuries, industrial uh, in illnesses, and pensions, all of those mm. sort of range. Of and did that issues. shape there... Did that shape your politics in any way? Because you would have oh, seen yeah. the the, oh, yeah. the stories of people. It was the best training I could have. I was I was always active in the trade union movement wherever I was working, but. Working for the NUM was the best trade union um, training you could have, really, because it was hard stuff. And even then, even then, it was pretty tough. There were threats to the mines then. But I was dealing with, I was dealing with miners with pneumoconiosis and all sorts of other conditions as well, trying to make sure they got proper support and, and compensation, those sorts of issues, and dealing with the. Uh, dealing with their pension fund to make sure they had a decent pension negotiations around that. So it was a, it was a good trade mm -hmm. union. Um, yeah. People and... won't remember these names, but I was appointed by the president was Joe Gormley. The, the general secretary was a guy called Lawrence Daly and the vice president was a guy called Mick McGuire. You know, people won't remember them, but actually they were, they were giants of the trade union movement. And what I found absolutely fascinating, they were incredibly well read. So these were working class intellectuals, largely mm -hmm. self-taught. So Mick McGuire was one of the most widely read people I'd met. And he'd be able, be able to quote at length from Robbie Burns and others. And the same with Lawrence Daly. He was particularly fascinating, really, because he would he would have an intellectual assessment of the situation rapidly. So it really was it was mm -hmm. a good training. And they all had influence I, on you? 
Yeah, definitely. That it was always about working class roots and representing working people, taking mm -hmm. people with you, winning the argument by using. Um, they had an intellectual force at that point in time in terms of winning political arguments because it was mm -hmm. they'd been hardened, they'd been steeled, in the you know the front row of the pits, the on the line, that sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I I've never never failed to admire. This, their determination and commitment, but also yeah. their intellectual abilities. That, and so you get this training, and I think you're the, the sort of the early days of a John McDonnell political career was in the Greater London Authority or the Greater London Council, I think it well, was at the time, the yeah, GLC. I, I left the NUM and, and I worked for the TUC, similar sort of work. But during that period, the GLC, the Greater London Council elections came along and up until then, in my constituency in Hayes and Harlington, the GRC hadn't made, made an awful lot of difference. But this time round, Thatcher had just been elected in 1979. 1981, the GRC elections, it was the first elections, serious elections, after the Thatcher government had been elected. So we made a point of taking the elections seriously. I became the candidate, it was a bit by accident, really. One of my friends was going to run as the candidate, then pulled out, and I was going to be his organiser. But he pulled out late because he was elected to his union executive. So we were short of a candidate and I was sort of stepped in. I was almost an accidental candidate. <laughs> I went on the GLC. Ken Livingstone was the leader of the council then, became leader of the council. We elected him leader of the GLC. And I became eventually mm. became chair of finance and deputy leader. So before your friend pulled out, did you have any inkling or any urge uh, to become a sort of... Uh, a frontline politician, if you will, to act, rather than being the organizer in the back, to be the face at the front. Did you have any inkling that that was the way it was going to go, or did it happen by accident? It was more by accident, really. I was, I was set on focusing the work that I was going to do in the future on the trade union movement mm -hmm. uh, and concentrate on that. Mind you, in you know, in, in the constituency. Um, we were running campaigns on a whole range of issues. So I was a community activist as much as anything, you know, on housing campaigns, setting up the local law centre, targeting the issues around, even at that stage around um, tax on employment within the area, trade union organisation at the local level as well. So a lot of my activities then were community based, but I'd, I'd envisage for the future, I'd most probably focus on the trade union work. And then mm. after that, as I say, I sort of stumbled into the GLC, and then at the GLC itself, it was a. I was involved in the drafting of the GLC manifesto at the time. It was quite detailed, and uh, it was a radical challenge to Mrs. Thatcher. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, Thatcher was introducing her economic policies. They called them monetarism then, but what we call neoliberalism now, and it was about. Well, it was about, first of all, undermining trade union rights, smashing the trade unions as much as they possibly could, and that would undermine the power of workers to negotiate decent wages. But she also saw local government, like the GLC, as a real challenge to her politics and, and even her ability to, government, to govern. So she saw not just taking on the trade unions, but also taking on local government. So the GLC right. was a real thorn in their side because... I was chair of finance. I had the ability to raise the preset, the rates in London. I was increase. I increased the budget from a billion to three billion. We were investing in things like reducing the fares on London transport, extending the bus network, investing in public services wherever we could, housing in particular. 
um, employment initiatives across the city and also transferring wealth from the richer boroughs to the poorer boroughs. So that mm. you can see how much she got annoyed by all of that. And yeah. Therefore, eventually he decided that she wouldn't just try and control the GRC, but she'd abolish it altogether. Yeah. And I, I, I think, look, we're going to get into it later on, but particularly your time on the Finance Committee and chairing the Finance Committee and your work in the GRC heavily influences and kind of shapes why shadow chancellor was such a perfect role for you or hope it, we we would have hoped it would have been chancellor but that wasn't to be um so we're going to fast forward a little bit into becoming an mp do you want to tell us the story about how you became member of parliament for hayes and harlington okay yeah <clears throat> i i stood um in 1992 the local party a friend of mine had been the candidate up until then and he decided he had enough times at that point in time it was a hayes and was a conservative um held by the conservatives what had happened in the night early in the uh, in the 1980s um the thatcher during the thatcher administration there'd been a split within the labor party um, locally um, the labor mp with the local members didn't feel they was properly representing us so there was an attempt to deselect him um, the party imposed him he then joined the sdp split the vote and the tories won the seat and they held the seat for up until, well, the next 13 years or so. I stood in 1992, um, and it's a lesson for today, really. 1990, Mrs Thatcher was in power, miles behind in the polls, and we thought we were going to walk the election in 1992. They get rid of Mrs Thatcher, in comes John Major, and 1992, the Tories win the election. And in Hayes, we thought we were going to win... Um, then when Major came along, it got very tight, and I lost by 54 votes, four recounts. 54 votes? Yeah. Christ. And it seared it into my heart, I tell you. Never take the electorate for granted, and I think that's what Labour did to a certain yeah. extent. But also the fact that it is all about organisation, making sure yeah. you get the votes out. Tell us, uh, tell people a little bit about what it was like in that count, having lost by 54 votes. I mean, oh, I lost next door, but it was certainly not 54 votes. Yeah, there were was... no recounts at mine. But... Yeah, but we were up against Terry Dix, um, who's people remember him now, he's dead. But he was a self-confessed racist. Oh, really? Was... Uh, yes, yeah. it was appalling. When... when um, the Asians were, were expelled from Uganda. Families were coming in through Heathrow. And he was a councillor at the time. And he was a chair of housing committee. He was refusing to house them. And he was putting them in taxis and sending them to the home office as a political stunt. It was a oh my God. And he was just dreadful. So to lose in 92 and to him was an even harder blow. But we literally, we lost on the Thursday. By the Saturday, we were out campaigning again because yeah. we wanted to win the seat and then in 97 and uh, we won with a tremendous majority and we've held it ever since and built the majority as much as mm. we could i ran so, so it was a 13-year conservative seat and it's now one of the safest sort of labor seats well, in we've we've bought as you know ali i've always described myself as a community mp the basis of our support in in the constituency is the work that we do on the ground of course mm -hmm. it is and, and obviously na national politics has, has its role. But what we're trying to do is make sure we work on the ground and build a sense of community. And in particular, um, make sure that we never again allow our constituency yeah. to be tarnished by the racism that took place then. Because yeah. it was tough during the GRs. People forget and the community was changing in Hayes, wasn't it? Yeah, things were changing. But 
for, people forget how tough it, it was during that period. You know, the demographics of the area changed. Um, Hayes is, my constituency has always been a migrant community, wave after mm -hmm. wave of different migrants for over the last century, basically. Yeah. EastEnders coming out from central London into uh, the outskirts of London. Then the Welsh and Scots, uh, the Welsh in particular coming along the railway. Um, Scots, when the mines were closing, even then coming down, down south. Then after that, we had there's a small, smaller Afro-Caribbean community, but it was largely an Asian community coming into into the area. Southall was the largest Asian population in the country, but quite a lot of Asian families moved into Hayes, which was terrific. And now we have it's such a diverse community. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. You know, it ranges from Afghans to Somalis, Ethiopians. And I, I we've. We've had problems with racism in the 80s, but we've fought against that and we've welded together a diverse yeah. community. People rub along together pretty well in our... I, I think one of the most amazing things, as you know, I've, I spent most of my life in Hillingdon, a lot of it in Hayes with you. And I think on a Friday, it's it's amazing to see the Hayes Town Centre, the diversity. I mean, you should give Suella Braverman a tour of, of, of <laughs> Hayes Town Centre because after Friday prayer, everyone comes out of the mosque but you also see the, the other communities in the town center and it's unbelievable to see and a real uh, something to be really proud of. I think it's interesting to me that you say that there's this history of racism because if you walk through Hayes Town Center now, what you see is, is, a, is a vibrant multicultural society with huge amounts of economic issues, yes, but, but it seems like a pretty cohesive multicultural society. Well, during that, that's been fought for, though, to be honest, that's had to be fought for. And we'll always remain mm. eternally vigilant around that. Yeah. But in the 70s and into the 80s, in the 80s in particular, um, the BMP, the National Front, right-wing groups um, yeah. were organising in this area. And it was very violent, yeah. extremely violent. And the National Front was, of course, based, their headquarters, I think, were in Usley, which is very, very close, kind of borders between the two. Um, uh, be before we move on to the sort of Corbyn years, which I do want to cover, um, one of the things that I think is amazing, having campaigned alongside you, is... There's a lot of people in politics and in Westminster who claim to have a personal mandate in Westminster, and it's bullshit, right? There's lots of people who I've met who think that they've got a personal mandate and they don't. You're not. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. You're one of the only people that I've seen when I knock on doors has a huge personal mandate. People vote for John McDonnell, and I think that's as a result of the community-based work that you do. And Look, there'll be there'll be young MPs maybe listening into this or watching clips of this. What's your advice to them? Because you've taken a Tory seat, turned it into a Labour sort of strong Labour seat. Of course, we have to be vigilant uh, of that, but that's all as a result of the work that you do on the ground. So, if there are if there are young MPs or, or future MPs listening, give them a little bit of advice about how to how to do that community based work. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe you on those personal vote stuff. I never take that. Mate, fact, okay. Let me let, hang on before you go in. Let me tell you a story. This is honest to god truth, right? I'm door knocking. You're a couple of doors down from me. I'm door knocking with you, and this this big fella comes out, right? Um, and I knock on his door, and you know we do the usual stuff. I'm from the Labour Party, and um, I wanted to see how he how you were going to vote. And he goes, "Listen, John McDonnell will always have my vote, right? But I can't back Jeremy Corbyn." I can't back Jeremy Corbyn. I'm going to give John my vote because of because of the work that he does locally, but I can't back Jeremy Corbyn. Now, this is clearly someone who has been influenced by the sort of the national media perception of Jeremy. As you and I both know, Jeremy is far from, I think, what 
what he's been presented often. But what was interesting to me was you and Jeremy's politics are very, very similar. But he had connected to you because of the local work that you had done, the community-based that you work that you had done. So he was voting John McDonnell, not for the Labour Party. And I think that's really important for local MPs to understand, you know, the, the influence your work can have in a community. Look, my advice to any person who's either an MP at the moment or considered to be an MP is not to think you've got a personal vote. It doesn't come that way. I think if the reason that we have the support at the moment in our community is because we've worked consistently over the last 40 years as a community to a large extent. And so that you as the MP or councillor, you're just the, if you like, the the presence, the presence of that that work, that's all. So it's more about making sure you do the work on the ground, but you do it as part of the the overall community. We beat the the racists out of Hayes. Um, you always have to be vigilant, but we beat them out of them because we always got to the issue that people are concerned about before them. So that issue couldn't be used to divide the community. And in fact, we then mobilised the community to address them. And so the work that we've been doing on the ground here, and COVID's knocked us back a bit, I have to say, but the work we've been doing on the ground is always be there um, as intensively as possible to deal with the concerns that people have mm -hmm. got. Now, with regard to Jeremy and all the rest, he, <clears throat> there were years of character assassination by Jeremy of, of the media. And to a certain extent, they had a go at me, but nothing on the scale of Jeremy. But what was good about it is as you, when you work in the local community, people will read the media or see it on the media and think, well, that's not the person I know. Yeah. Do you know, that isn't, I, I, that I, isn't the John and McDonnell I line. I think that's what's interesting about you was... Um, Away from the, the political work, you are present in the community. And that's the advice that I think that, that young aspiring politicians should. I mean, one of the, one of the great things is I, used, I, I would sometimes sit in your office to see you, whether it was some local work, because I used to be a local councillor in your constituency. And you would come into the office having taken the bus to work, speaking to people on the bus, and you'd walk in with casework because you'd picked it up on the bus. And, um, and but that's part of being present in the community, right? People see you, people speak to you. So John McDonnell isn't someone they see on TV; it's someone they saw on the bus and they told him, "I've got this case. Work, go and sort it out." Well, you know as well as I that Helen who runs my. Oh, uh, she's fuming. She hates you. <laughs> she used to say, "Stop walking to the town centre. Yeah. We're picking up too much casework at the moment." Yeah, she'd be she's like, brilliant. "Ali, go pick him up so he doesn't overload <laughs> us with work." She does a fantastic job. But she's it, brilliant. What COVID has knocked us back a bit on all of that, to be honest, because. We had to go then into online discussions and meetings, and that doesn't necessarily suit our local community as much as others. So we're now getting back to, so every Saturday in the coming months, and what we're doing is we do a sort of relief drop, and then it's we invite people to come and have a cup of tea with your MP on a Saturday morning or whatever. And you think people don't won't, but they do. They turn up and we have a chat about what's going on, any individual concerns that they've got. And uh, it's trying to make sure you've always got your antennae within the community to find out what's going on and that you engage in it. But again, just going back to it, when people see you doing on the work on the ground and confronting the issues that concern them, you might not solve all their problems. You might not be able to because you're not in control of a lot of the things, particularly around housing supply. But they will give you the, the, the benefit of saying, well, at least you tried. When I when the media did stuff on me, the best, the funniest one 
can you, I don't know if you can remember it, but I think it was the Daily Mail did this big story, splashed it everywhere, that I was a KGB agent. <laughs> I don't remember this one, all right. <laughs> I was a KGB agent going down to Guildford on a regular basis to pick up a sum of money, which was my bribe <laughs> from the KGB. Where? Was, from Guildford? Yeah, I don't know. Why the hell would it be Guildford? I've only been to Guildford <laughs> twice to do public meetings down there, and that's it. Right. But it was just hilarious. Yeah. And so it was, people would, it became a running joke on the doorstep at times as well. Mm. Have you seen such and such? Well, I, well, I always thought there was, I don't know, was it The Spectator? They did this cartoon of you, and they called you the hard man of the left. I don't know if you remember. And anyone who's met John McDonnell will know. Listen, you're 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 up for a fight when you're when you're fighting for what you believe in. But a hard man, you know, one of the nicest people I've met in politics, and that's that's the amazing thing that the media can do, right? Listen, I want to go to the Corbyn years quickly. Um, yep. Now, obviously, you became an MP um, and uh, worked really hard to turn the constituency, but nationally as well, part of the Socialist Campaign Group. You yourself ran for leader uh, a few times. You, I wish you were in studio and you could see this, but if you look. I don't know which camera you can see here, but I've oh, got the John no. McDonald for leader shirts here. Oh, and no. I, I believe I was part of inadvertently spreading rumors about you during the Corbyn years because I would wear <laughs> these to football and people would think that that we were organizing. Uh, but we weren't. I just love the shirts. Um, but you ran for, for leader yourself a couple of times unsuccessfully. There was once where I don't think you, you made the ballot, which would have been interesting if you had. But eventually we get um, to 2015 when Jeremy runs for leader. Could you give us uh, the sort of the, the behind the scenes of what it was like yeah. to select Jeremy? Because, you know, I was someone uh, who was very, very new to politics and the Labour Party. And I got told, listen, Jeremy Corbyn is the candidate on the left who's running. And I think I remember saying who, right? Because I, 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 I didn't really know Jeremy that well. Give us the behind the scenes of how Jeremy was chosen as the person. Well, what happened was is that Ed Miliband resigned. And it was a shock he resigned. I. I did not want Ed Miliband to resign. I wanted him to stay there because I thought um, his, his general tendencies are on the left and there was someone we could work with. But he lost the election, resigned precipitously. And then we, at that point, there were people saying, well, there'll be a leadership election. We need a left candidate. We convened a meeting of what was described as the left forum. It was trying to get all the left organisations together in the same room just to have a conversation about it. And both Jeremy and I actually were recommending then that we didn't run a candidate. And the reason for that is that we'd been through the experience where I couldn't even get on the ballot paper. And we, the same Diane we got on the ballot paper and the vote was reasonable. But this time round, we thought maybe what we should do is back a soft left candidate like Andy Burnham and try and get a deal done where at least some of the left would be put on the front bench. Not necessarily me or Jeremy, but some of the, the left that were coming through. So we were saying to people, look, we think we might be in a situation where if we run a candidate, we'll they'll demonstrate the weakness rather than the strength of the left. But people were saying, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. As long as you run a candidate, you'll have the chance to have a debate around the issues. And even if you can't get on the ballot paper, in the weeks coming up before that is finalised, at least you'll have media coverage of the arguments you want to put forward from the left. Anyway, we had two meetings in the forum. People were overwhelming in support of running a candidate. So we mm. took it back. We had but a without a real prayer of winning, right? Running a candidate for the argument. So there was no real prayer of winning. No, no, no. Was, if we run a candidate for the argument, even if you can't get on the ballot paper, if you get on the ballot paper, which would be a miracle, mm. well, then at least we'll be able to demonstrate maybe 
20, 25%, 30% of support. And for listeners listeners who may not know what John means by the ballot paper, to to run to be a leader of the Labour Party, you have to be sponsored by a certain number of MPs, usually about 20%, 30%, depending on the size um, of, of... uh, of the PLP and because of the makeup of the PLP that was often very difficult for the left so you're saying John I I honestly thought there's no chance of getting on the ballot paper but let's have a try if that's what people want so we went back to the campaign group sat around the table I made it clear I, I'd run twice I wasn't going to run I wasn't going to run again um, I'd, I'd had a heart attack as well and physically I didn't think I'd be up for it anyway and also I said, I've tried to get on the ballot paper. I'm so popular, I can't even get the votes for that. So there's no chance. Um, Diane said she'd run the last time and she'd done her bit. So we went round the table. Jeremy's there. And so literally he said, well, Jeremy, it's you. You're going to have to have a go. It's your your turn turn sort of thing. And he said, and he wasn't keen at first. He just said, okay, I'll do it. I'll I'll have a go. Then afterwards he said to me, "Will, will you run the campaign? And I said, yeah. I said, I still think this is a mistake. <laughs> but, but I'll have a go, you know. This is, a, this is a unique uh, incident of reluctant leadership, right? Both the campaign manager <laughs> and the candidate didn't want to do it. Well, that's what I love about the bloke, isn't it? Really? I said that during the campaign. I said, look, this is, this is the sort of candidate, I, this is the sort of leader I want. People yeah. have to be forced into it, not careerists. Or anything yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, what then happened... And Jeremy said, okay. And we said, right, we've got a candidate. And then my job was to try and get him nominated. And the person, um, much derided now, but actually the person who um, really turned the corner on all of that was John Landsman, who was a Labour Party activist, had worked with Tony Benn over the years on and off. We came together and literally we went through every contact we could think of who had some influence over a Labour MP that might be able to nominate Jeremy. And we worked and worked and worked and literally it was who can talk to who, who can persuade who, what influence can they exert. And then we got to the final deadline and um, we were a couple short on the morning. We We had to get the votes in and I had a couple of people who I'd begged, literally begged to nominate if we were close to the edge of Jeremy getting nominated. And within the last, literally, they're standing at the ballot box. I went down on my knees at one point to, <laughs> to nominate, literally. And two of them then put the nominations in and Jeremy got on the ballot. So their so agreement was, if you're close, we'll push you over the edge. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So Jeremy gets on the ballot paper. No one thought it would stand any chance of winning. I was aiming for 25, 30% vote. And that would be a huge breakthrough for... Mm-hmm. demonstrate the support that there is in the party for the arguments the up policies we're advocating our analysis of the world etc yeah. we started the campaign there was a new membership procedure that ed Miliband had introduced where people were able to join up quickly as um, uh, to support to vote in the election itself we then um, literally what happened was once jeremy was announced lots of people came forward and said they'd help lots of young people that was just yeah. tremendous and they came along I chaired the campaign committees and and people came along volunteering to do different parts of the work, public relations, development of policy, the telephone canvassing and ballot. But in addition to that, the group of young people came along and said, look, why don't we use these mechanisms in social media? Most of which many of us never even understood. Mm-hmm. It was about targeting, etc. And by the time we got to the middle of the campaign, I thought, Blind, we're going to win this. Jeremy yeah. had done a, said, 
we said we'll do a traditional campaign as well. Jeremy will tour around the country, speaking at meetings. He said to me, look, come with me. We'll do them together. I said, I, I joked about it. And it's true. I said, look, if we go around, it'll look like the last of summer wine going touring around <laughs> the country. And it'll look like pet two old geezers on the trot running around the country. Go around there. We'll book the rooms. Yeah. I did that classic thing with people who were organising the meetings. Book a room small enough so there's standing room only. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then what happened? We did the first few, and they were absolutely packed out. We had people queuing in the street. They yeah. Around but so uh, what, when so listen, he I mean he decides to run, gets on the ballot, the campaign starts, and obviously it, the moment is critical because he's you know it's post austerity. He's the only real anti austerity candidate that's yeah. driving those kind of things. I think his his anti war positions, particularly post Iraq war, were really really powerful to a Labour membership, and. So, at what is there a moment where you realise, bloody hell, we're onto something here? It was, yeah, it was his first. He did the first debate. Yeah. And Pete, I can always remember a firefighter. I think it was asked him a straight question, and no one would answer it, and only Jeremy did. Mm-hmm. Boom! That's yeah. it. end of austerity. That's it. And what happened was, is that it was a professional campaign. Madeline Williams used to head up my office and worked with the GLC. We met with Harry Barlow as one of our PR people in the GLC. We went off to a, a young advertising agency to talk about how we would use, what language we would use in our campaigning. And we spent, a, you know, it's like thinking through an afternoon of what is the language, what are the words that best sum up Jeremy. And we came up with honest politics, straight talking, because that's what Jeremy yeah. was about. And as soon as he got out there and we shaped all the material around that, people realised, actually, this is honest politics. He is straight talking. Yeah. Even if I don't agree with everything he says, he believes in it. He's, he's principled. Yeah, and I and think that's, that's... what attracted him. All the others were hedging their bets and whatever. That's, that's, that's what's amazing, I think. And one of the things that stood him out, even away from the politics early on, was that... He, he didn't come across as a PR machine. He didn't come across as someone who'd been focus grouped. He was saying what he thought. And I think the most common thing that I heard about Jeremy during his leadership years was, I may not agree with everything he says, but, you know, I believe he believes in what he's saying and he's a man of principle and he's straight talking. And I think that's what really set him apart from everyone else was he was answering questions directly and that straight talking, honest politics was hugely impactful. Yeah. And it was a professional campaign, to be honest. You, you mentioned focus groups. I, I was responsible for the GRC campaign. I chaired all the committees there. And we I did polling on a massive scale. And mm. we used focus groups. But it wasn't about going to focus groups as they do now to say, you know, what do you think we should say? Yeah. What we were going to focus groups for and polling for is this is what we want to do. What's the language exactly. we want to use to be able to convince people around it? So it wasn't... What ideas have you got? We've got the ideas. It's how yeah. to communicate. God, I wish, I wish people listening, certain people in leadership positions would <laughs> would understand that. You know, that, that politics isn't about regurgitating what the focus group tells you people already believe. Anyone can do that. But the power of real politicians, real change makers, is going, this is what we believe is best for the world, best for our communities, best for our society. And yes, the professional element is how do we sell that to the public? And I think that's what you guys did so powerfully. So tell me about when he won. We, <laughs> the two of you in some corner going, fucking hell, what have we done here? Uh, just on the campaigning, the, the expression has always been used in prof- theme and scheme. You've got to have a theme and then you've got to have a scheme. If you mm. haven't got a theme, there's no point in having a scheme. Anyway, what happens? We get halfway through the campaign. Tony Blair, the media then have ignored us to a large extent. 
then they realised we could win and start getting serious in attacking us. Tony Blair came out and attacked Jeremy. Best thing that could possibly happen. It yeah. lifted our support overnight, really. It was quite remarkable. Jeremy then wins. We, we're at the QE2. They tell us the results. And actually, the result was exactly the young team that had been doing our social media and the all the logarithms and all that sort of stuff. It was exactly the result they predicted. Yeah. And up until then, I kept on telling them to go back and retest. They might have got <laughs> it wrong. But yeah. it was exactly... He won across the board, right? Members, trade unionists, everywhere. Extraordinary result. Yeah. First round. We de- Boom. They announce it. Jeremy gets um, the leadership. First thing he does is he leaves, thanks everyone, leaves the hall and goes to speak at a demonstration outside, which is about yeah. in support of refugees, which I thought yeah. was... Can I tell you? Can I tell you a little story about when he won? I was mm-hmm. at Brunel. I was the president of the uni, uh, uh, student union at Brunel, and we had an open day. Uh, and I was giving a speech alongside other university executives. Now, uh, the university executives at Brunel were not working class folk, right? We're talking middle upper class, sort of, on very high salaries. And the woman next to me was a senior executive at the university. We're both watching on our phones as Jeremy's won. And she bursts into tears. And I remember thinking, Jesus, if Jeremy has got me, a working class kid from a council estate, and he's got her, this, you know, this fairly posh, you know, middle to upper middle class uh, executive, he's really onto something here. And that was what was amazing. He was winning everyone over. Mm. Yeah, I think people were, people recognized they were desperate for change. Mm. Austerity had to end. Everything that we were arguing for then sort of resonated, and it was yeah. in advance, both in terms of what we want to do economically, but also environmentally, tackling climate change, yeah. and also addressing these fundamental issues of poverty and inequality yeah. in our society. Okay. I think all that resonated. It was yeah. time for change. So, so Jeremy he gets elected. He appoints his shadow cabinet. I'm appointed shadow chancellor. We'd already had people, even if, when Jeremy did his thank you speech at the end of the election. There was a ticker tape going up along the BBC um, coverage of people, Labour Party mem- Labour Party front benchers resigning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, <laughs> they had already. They knew the the writing was on the wall. Yeah, but we Jeremy put together a um, shadow cabinet that was tough. Where he did it. I mean, that um, first shadow cabinet was really quite a unity shadow cabinet. He oh, reached was, out to all parts of the party. Yeah. yeah, it was completely broad church. You know right the way across the piece and that was the whole point really the, i've always worked on the basis of the harold wilson principle you know you you have a broad church in in, in your shadow cabinet or in your cabinet because that represents the whole of party it holds it together better but also a broad church enables you to put ideas forward and be challenged about yeah. it it's better decision making than just have the single-minded phalanx of people that, uh, who are not capable of challenging the proposals you're putting forward that that was the first shadow cabinet um after that unfortunately though literally it was coup attempt after coup attempt to try and Mm -hmm. undermine jeremy and when did you start when did you start did you know immediately that there were that there were plans you know that the knives were being sharpened to go into the leadership within the first eight weeks um was the first coup assembly if you like trying to trying to undermine the situation. And we had people on our own backbenchers getting up mm. in Parliament, uh, unfortunately dividing the party. That was yeah. So can I, there. John, can I ask you, listen, like, personally, what was that like? Because 
you know, I can only imagine having been on the left of the party for years and years and years, decades, the left of the party, under this, you know, agreement and this coalition of a broad church, center left, left party had waited their turn. Right, supported the party in, in, in broad spectrum. Obviously there were individual issues that disagreement on and, and fights particularly over war and other things, but but in large had gone along with the project for the longest time. And then the left wins the argument fair and square. It's finally your turn and you're not given the fair shot that you had given others. What was that like? I try to understand the psychology of those people who are were opposing us then or in uncertain and it was a bit like this and this is a bit pop psychology i know a group of people who had gone into the labor party often with the best of intentions but also saw it as a career for life jeremy comes along and changes things by winning that election and they see their whole future disappearing the mm. careers what they believed in and what should be done as it go if we, labor gets into government all of that so it was some of it was a bit hysterical as well, the, the reaction to it. And I was trying to understand that. So part of our job was to, that's why the Shadow Cabinet was broad church. Part of our job was to try and reassure people, look, yeah. you can work with us. Yes, we are about radical change, but most of this you actually believe in, I think. Why don't you come along with us? Um, but there were some who just wouldn't and therefore took every opportunity yeah. to flop. If, if it they can if felt like to me... And again, this might be really pop psychology, but it felt like to me for some, it was the Labour Party is my toy and only I'm allowed to play with it. I think I think there was a, that element of it. But again, it was up to us to try and hold things together. And to do that, you had to understand why people were opposing. Mm. And if it was about an area of policy, bring them in and talk it through. What is it you disagree with? What is it you think we should be doing differently and how can we improve it? That sort of thing. I tried masses of that as much as I, I possibly mm-hmm. could, you know. And so Rachel Reeves, you know, did a booklet. Um, she did a I can't remember what date it was. It must have been 2016 or something. She did a booklet called Everyday Economics. And I said, come and have a cup of tea. And I, I read through it and I said, this, this is pretty good. In mm. fact, I said I joked with her. This is plagiarism. You've taken <laughs> quite a lot of our policies. Well, I but think I said to her, "Work with us. Do you want a do you want yeah. a role to play?" But she was. But it also felt it also felt like for some, maybe what we'd call the soft left, who did believe in the things that you believe, but thought they were quote unquote unelectable, mm. they started to grow in confidence. Right? They saw they saw. Hang on, this you know, see Jeremy at Glastonbury crying out loud. There's uh, hundreds of thousands of people chanting his name, and. Uh, listen, I'm going to say this one. I don't know the guy personally, and I might be way off here. But Ed Miliband, as one, for me, it felt like he saw Jeremy Corbyn and thought, "Fucking hell, I could have been that, right? I could. I believe in all these things that he believes in, but I was told by focus groups and advisors that this is unelectable and I can't do it." And so it felt like a lot of them grew in confidence. Yeah, I think that's true. I I wished Ed Miliband would have served in our shadow cabinet, but he didn't want to at that time. He mm-hmm. wanted time out and concentrate on other other things. I could understand that having yeah. just lost. The, there's an the, amazing, by the way, there's an amazing GQ interview between Alistair Campbell and Ed Miliband. If anyone has time to go and listen to it on YouTube, because that's one of the first moment I realized, hang on, I think Ed, the biggest regret he has is that he didn't really fight for the things he actually believed in. He was a bit hesitant in his leadership. You should go and watch, everyone should go and watch it because he does a fervent, fervent um, defense of Jeremy in that interview. Um, and uh, I would advise everyone to listen to it. Anyway, well, that, that's besides the point. I think, so you go, you go in, 
you know, the, the, the knives are out and there's huge divisions in the party, but you go into a 2017 snap election. Tell me about that. Um, we're 20 points behind at the beginning. I chair the campaign committee. Um, we decide um, that it's going to be a campaign on the stomp. Jeremy will go all around the country. Um, we'll organize big rallies, street meetings, that sort of thing. But we'll also hit the media on a regular basis with a radical manifesto, policy announcement after policy announcement, all all bread and butter issues, you know, around mm. saving the NHS, building the homes that people need, lifting people out of poverty, restoring trade mm. union rights, um, huge environmental yeah. campaign as well. So that was the plan of the campaign. Similar to, to Jeremy running for leader, when the snap election gets called, are you terrified that you're going to get hammered? Well, I... <laughs> There was, if you looked at the opinion polls, we're 20 points behind. No one has ever recovered from yeah. that during an election campaign. In fact, the Labour Party apparatchiks, the bureaucracy that ran the party, um, when we talked about this sort of campaign that we were going to do, because it was trying to mobilise people who may not have voted in the past, particularly young people, and have an enthusiastic campaign no matter what, their argument to us was very straightforward. We've got to run a defensive campaign because no one has ever, points in the polls never shift during a general election campaign or not much. The people you're targeting don't vote. That's why they call them non-voters. Therefore, what we've got to do is put all our resources into limiting the damage, saving certain seats, etc. And we said, no, we're going we're gonna to run a positive campaign because we can win the argument. We produced the manifesto. If you remember... The manifesto was leaked. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. leaked the manifesto, but act, and we were all in. When that happened, I thought, oh, we were in. You know, we thought, oh dear, this is disastrous. But it's actually, the, best the best thing that could have happened. Could possibly happened. It was leaked. It was covered in all the papers as a leak. We got more coverage as a result. We shot up in the polls by about ten points once the manifesto had been discussed. Yeah, and and the Tories, Theresa May, ran a disastrous campaign. And the camp, the aggressive campaign of on the stomp, um, mm. actually worked because not only did it get publicity, it also mobilised people to work in the campaign to get yeah. the vote out. But uh, the, uh, Theresa May also ran a very presidential style campaign, which I think backfired because when when you run a presidential campaign, you focus on the individuals, and the reality was the more people saw of Jeremy himself rather than what was yeah. presented. But not just Jeremy. I, you know, I'm always hesitant to to. In sort of movement building campaigns, I'm always hesitant to put it on one individual. Obviously, Jeremy led it, but the ideas, it wasn't just Jeremy, it was yourself, it was Diane, it was loads of different people who were out, and it was the ideas that people got behind. That's why you shot temples up in the in the manifesto, because when the manifesto came out, these were ideas people could rally behind. They were given an alternative. Yeah, I think people had been waiting for that sort of change. That was, People realised it was time for mm -hmm. change, and they were looking for it. And yeah. Uh, the nature of the campaign was to try and get those ideas across and mobilize as much yeah. enthusiasm and getting the buzz going as possible. Because up until then, with the Tories winning in 10 and 2015, I think people were, were thinking Labour will never win another election yeah. and we'll never get back. So that was the idea. Yeah. And it worked. We know. And uh, I, was, I was sent off on the night to the, you know, when they do the exit polls, I was sent off to do that. And, yeah. Um, I went there in my mind with all sorts of different reactions. You know, I thought maybe it's a bad result, but be ready for it. But when I got there and the poll came out, you know, 
I was sitting next to a Tory minister and I thought he was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> so you were on air when the exit poll came out? It was extraordinary. It came out. I'm sitting there. You've got Dimbleby and you've got um, the Tory M minister. It comes out and I just... Well, the other thing is I, the Tory went into... It went really. I thought he was going to administer CPR at one point in time. <laughs> but I did that bit because it's all... You have to be careful on those. It's a poll... So I did that bit about, well, this is a poll. Let's see how the results yeah. are come out. Because you don't want to be in a situation where the poll says one thing and then you're, you're glowing about it and then the results don't match it. We came really close, though. When the results did come out, it was disappointing in the end. We came so close to going mm. into government, effectively, at least being the largest party. Yeah, um, about 2,000 votes away, right? Yeah. Do you remember what you said to me that night? Because I was in the count. I was in the, it, I was in the, for people who don't know, it happens at Brunel University, which is really poetic for me and you. Um, and, and Hayes and Harlington, uh, Uxbridge and South, Ryslip, um, and Ryslip, Northwood and Pinner, all the counts happen at the same time. I ran into you in the count. Do you remember what you said to me? No, tell me. You said two more weeks and we would have won this election. Oh, that's If the election true, yeah. had gone on for two more weeks, and I think that's spot on. Yeah. If we had an all extra right. two weeks, you would have won that election. I think that is true because we had momentum with us that was growing mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Know? Anyway, uh, we are. And, we got uh, to where we could. And and, and so listen, it. obviously, the divisions go on um, after the 2017 uh, election, and we get into the 2019 election, which was a very very difficult time. Um, and I don't want to re-legislate. Everyone has read the reports, and everyone knows what happened in the Labour Party in the period between 2017 and 2019. What I want to focus on is Brexit, right? Because this really pisses me off. Uh, as you may have noticed, we're allowed to swear on this show. This really pisses <laughs> me off, right? So I want to handle it right here on this show. There are a small group of people who seem to have reimagined history that you came up with the Brexit policy that killed the general election campaign in 2019. That yeah. is absolute fucking bullshit. And I'm going <laughs> to call it out here because people forget that it was party conference who passed the policy for a second yeah. referendum uh, well, to go on to our manifesto. The now leader of the Labour Party went up on stage and said, no one is ruling out uh, uh, Remain being on the ballot and a second referendum is absolutely the way to go. People forget the context of the time. So can you actually set the fucking record straight here? <laughs> what happened watch with your, the Brexit policy? Watch your language. Sorry, sorry. Um, look, We're gonna, reality, my producers are going to bleep that later on. <laughs> it's a, it was a Brexit general election. That's the first thing. Um, I did everything I could in throwing, you know, the, we had a radical manifesto and I was trying to move the election away from Brexit onto policies. And what happened was is that the election came two years early. So I was pushing out as much policy as I could to move away from Brexit. That didn't work because then people thought, well, this isn't credible because you, you, you're offering to do too so much. It's not credible. You could do it. It was. We could have done it, but people didn't believe it. So it was all about Brexit. On Brexit, the issue was fairly um, straightforward for us. We, we, you know, we campaigned. People are criticising Jeremy for not campaigning hard enough for Remain in the um, the, the referendum. That's yeah. untrue. We toured around the country. Yeah. I, he did more I events than Cameron did. Yanis Varoufakis in different seats all over the country arguing for Remain, and so did Jeremy. Anyway. We lost the we lost the referendum. It came out in favour of Brexit. Johnson takes over. It's a straightforward 
Brexit campaign. Labour, we had to develop a policy under Labour which held the party together. Um, so that meant accepting that Brexit was happening because that's what they respect the referendum result. And then see whether or not we could get a Brexit deal done that would protect our economy as much as we possibly could. But then it was quite clear that that we were clear about that deal would then have to go back to the to the people in another referendum and they would decide whether or not that Brexit deal was satisfactory. And of course, that then developed in that, yeah, that if you if you did that, well, the option of remain would be on the ballot paper. Mm -hmm. The Labour Party conference was fairly straightforward. That resolution was put through and we adhered to the, the yeah. resolution that went through conference yeah. all the way through in our, on I our mean, campaigning. I mean, to whatever. a certain extent, I think we got we it was we were snookered in essence with 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 the context of the election because we couldn't have run a what Keir Starmer's policy is now we would have got bashed both in the media but also by our membership who will largely remain um and so we got caught into in a position where there's nothing we could have done that would have won it was in, it, it was an impossible position remember I, I we were doing polling at the time as well um and the problem is exactly as you said if you looked at Labour support, seven out of ten Labour supporters supported Remain. Mm -hmm. The the membership of the Labour Party was even greater support for Remain than that. So we were stuck that if we moved anywhere near to a Brexit-y type position, we'd lose a lot of support from the, what is our the bulk of our Labour Party supporters. Mm -hmm. If we moved any further to the sort of Remainy type position, we would lose yeah. the the Brexit support membership that we had as well. So it was yeah. an impossible position. And of course, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a policy issue on Brexit as well. I think once the campaign got going, what a lot of folks were telling me on the doorstep, of course, I ran in that election was we want Brexit to be over. And the problem is with the second referendum, it just keeps going. What Boris is promising us, whether it's remain or leave, yeah. just for, end it, right? And that's that's what he was offering. And listen, 2019 was desperately disappointing. But I want to focus a little bit now more on the future, uh, because I still think you have a huge role to play in the political future of the Labour Party, of the political future of Britain. So I want to talk a little bit about your views moving forward. It looks like now, take nothing for granted, I'm still hesitant, but it looks like we're going to get a Labour government when the general election hits probably next year. What would your plea be? to the Labour leadership on the issues that they need to tackle? There's got to be an honest recognition of what Labour will inherit from the Tories um, because the scale of the problems that we're going to face are immense. You know, 13 years of austerity, because that's what it's been like, have undermined our public services in a way which... I think many of us never really envisaged could happen, but that's what's happened. It isn't just the NHS, it's education, it's local councils. 26 of them are on the edge of bankruptcy now. Social care has collapsed. And you look around you, you know, the housing programmes that local authorities would run in the past to make sure people have a decent roof over their heads have largely been drawn to a halt. So. This, I want Labour to at least have an understanding of the scale of the problems that we've got to face. And then mm -hmm. uh, overlooking all of this is the grotesque inequalities within our society. And that includes real hardship and poverty amongst large numbers. You know, we've got 14 million 
people living in poverty. We've got, was it now, four and a half million children? And two thirds of them are in families where someone's at work. So that means wages held back has created such a level of poverty. But in addition to that, on top of all of that, we've got the climate catastrophe that we face, the climate emergency. And I think Labour needs to be honest about acknowledging the scale of the problems that we've got. And as a result of that, you do need to respond to that, those sorts of cumulative crises. You've got to respond with radical policies. And at the moment, um, I can't see yet being announced, first of all, the level of um, redistributive um, taxation, for example, that will enable us to fund the public services that we need. And I can't see the scale of radical change with regard to how people are treated in employment, not just about trade union rights, but also the development of an industrial strategy that will ensure that people are earning decent wages to provide them with a decent quality of life. And I can't yet see the scale of the programme of work that's mm -hmm. needed to tackle the climate catastrophe we're facing. So my hope is that at this year's Labour Party conference, the party will, the party leadership recognises it's got to start launching a, a radical programme up until the next general election. And the thing I keep saying to people, learn from the lessons of 2019, that heavy defeat. Yes, it was a Brexit election, but also learn the lesson that if you are putting policies out there the way I did, um, if you don't have the time to explain them, rebut mm. the criticisms, explain to people individually in, in the, their communities what they what they can do for them, um, people don't won't think you're credible. So yeah. my and, and there, there's a little is, that, is there not a little bit of a worry that if Labour isn't radical, if it doesn't seriously address the issues. That year two, year three into a Labour administration, there will be serious blowback from the public. Because I know for sure people around me, not Labour Party members, family members, friends around me, if Labour come into government and they're not radically dealing with the NHS in terms of funding and uh, reorganisation, if they're not seriously dealing with the wage inequality and in-work poverty, there's going to be enormous blowback and pushback. And my fear is a rise of a real far right in this country if Labour aren't able to tackle these issues in opposition, the Tories could get real nasty. Well, there's a number of arguments that can be put there. Is that, first of all, I think to get elected, you can't just get elected by default because of the Tories' unpopularity. We thought about that in 1990, and look what happened in 92. The polls are narrowing a little bit this, this week. We'll see what happens in future trends. I, I just say to any, anyone who's standing as a Labour candidate, don't think we can walk into government just because people don't like the Tories. That's the first thing. The second thing is to win an election is critically important, but to sustain a Labour government is equally important as well. And you need to build up your support for the tough times as well. If you don't, if you get into power and then you're not seen to be tackling the real issues that people are facing, as you say, disillusionment can set in fairly quickly. And my worry is that doesn't mean necessarily the return of the Tories. It means actually you could be seeing the rise of the far right again, as you're seeing across Europe at the moment, Italy, mm. Germany and elsewhere. So, yes, that like you, that's what I'm anxious about. That's mm. why it's important people recognise that you we've got to face up to the real issues. If people after 12 months after election of a Labour government, 
and their wages are still effectively being frozen if their public services are seeing no visible and radical improvement. And mm. if at the same time, the younger generation in particular are increasingly worried that the planet just will not survive for them because yeah. of the continuing dependence on fossil fuels. I think there is a real potential disillusionment and, and shift. To it's the, about to giving some, I think, I think it's really interesting you talk about you're not going to win an election by default. This is the thing I'm worried about. One of the big sense checks I take, I play for, I used to play it before my neck. I play football every Friday or I did before my neck. And the changing room is about 20 people, um, none of whom are political. Um, and I always got a really good focus group of what's going on, particularly with young people in that room. And almost all of them are telling me they're not going to bother to vote because they, they, you know, they, 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 there's nothing being given to them. There's no hope being given to them. And I think that's where we're struggling with the party is, you know, we can't uh, we can't corner ourselves into a position where we're so fearful of the focus groups or what what's being said that we don't give people something to believe in. And then we have a serious turnout problem. Um, come the next general election um and you know that that's that's one of my serious fears um we're running a little bit over just because you've been brilliant john and this has been so interesting um i've got a couple of more questions if, if i could hold you on for a couple of more minutes on uh, a few questions i asked um my twitter and instagram followers what questions do you have for john mcdonald and the overwhelming one i got was particularly from people on the left of the party who, who were asking why should we continue to fight on when the party machinery continuously punches us in the face. Do you want to give them a rallying cry as to why they should continue fighting in the Labour Party? Look, the, uh, I've been in the party for nearly 50 years. Um, these things come in waves, you know, left, right. It shifts in different times and different generations in particular. The issue now, though, for the left in particular, is that the, the issues that we'll be facing in this coming period are of such a scale, only radical solutions will be able to tackle those problems. And those radical solutions will come from the left. That The left has always been the fertile ground for ideas that de developed. So in this coming period, it, when Labour goes into government, even, in a, you know, it, the manifesto is important, but actually what is important is usually the first year, the first 18 months of any government. And whatever it says in the manifesto, when Labour gets into government, the, the issues they're going to face are so huge that only radical policies can pursue them, can actually tackle them. So therefore, that period of change, I think, will come after the first 12 months of the next Labour government. And that's why it's important both to be in the party, mobilising different campaigns, working with trade unions and others for that moment, developing the ideas now so they're readily available on the shelf for when they're desperately needed. And I think that's the period and time scale we should be working on there. What is amazing as well, though, I have to say, you look at the rave of industrial action we've just gone through. I've been on picket line after picket line. Who's on those picket lines? Actually, it's largely young people, mm. young teachers, young NHS workers, young people working within a whole range of different roles. And they're there and they want radical change. They're not gonna go away. And eventually you have to move from the industrial struggle to the electoral yeah. struggle. And that's why we've got to be there with the organization on the ground to yeah. do that. So I'm pretty optimistic about the potential for radical change. And that's why 
it's important that people stick around and get yeah. get stuck in during that period and i i think with the organization one of the things i've heard you say over the years is we always have to be ready always have to be ready for the fight always have to be ready for government and you learned that in 2015 with the leadership election no one gave you guys a prayer of winning but you were ready you were ready to organize you were ready to fight and you won and i think you know as unlikely as it was then it may seem even more unlikely now but we have to be ready for that fight and i take inspiration from our from our comrades and friends in america Right. This week, we saw the president of the United States for the first time ever on a union picket line. And that is because the fight of the left in America who have fought to make these issues and to win the arguments within the party. Now, Biden will have been seen as an impossible candidate to get on the picket line. But it's always possible. We are, and particularly, I think the responsibility falls on people like me and the younger organizers now in the movement to keep to give people hope, to give our activists and organizers hope and to say, hey, listen, we can still win. We can still influence our society. We just have to be ready and willing to fight in the Labour Party and in the country and in the trade union movement as well. Is that something you would agree with? I think what happens is the real world intrudes. The yeah. real world actually dictates, and that sounds a bit economic determinism, this, but the real world intrudes and people realise actually change has to happen, enough's enough, and they mobilise then. And the issue then is in what form do they mobilise? So their trade unions and industrial struggle is important, but you also have to come to terms with electoral politics because yeah. we want a government always, we want a government to enable us to legislate the change that's needed. And I think there's, as I say, the real world will determine the next wave of radical action. And I think it will come fairly soon because the problems that we face are so immense. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, people won't put up with the existing yeah. system. They've had enough. And as it comes to future leaders, is there anyone people should look out for, young MPs that you can give shout outs to that people oh, should look to? a huge generation that's come through. Um, if you look at the range of them, it's just incredible. In, in terms of the campaign group, the socialist campaign group, you know, you've got people like Richard Bergen, Nadia Whittam, Zara Sultana, Bel Ribeiro Addy, Olivia Blake. Uh, you name it, there's a whole range of some fantastic yeah, people. Yeah, the talent is there for sure. Yeah, Becky Long Bailey, who ran for leadership last time, was a brilliant campaign, but intellectually, you know, absolutely challenging of the existing system. Yeah. There's a whole range of people there yeah. who... There's too many I names I, to I, I'm quite dis I think people didn't give Becky a fair shot, and I did an interview with her that we haven't actually aired, but so smart, so caring, I think absolutely on the ball, and uh, I think she has a huge future too. Listen, John, we started with the man. We went into the Corbyn years and into the future, and I'm going to end on the man as well. I want people to get to know John a little bit more. So quick fire. Uh, I'm going to ask you some personal questions. Um, you can tell me to do one uh, if you want. What does John McDonald do away from politics to relax? Okay. You noticed I'm wearing my Man United shirt today. There we go. Here we go. Well, uh, football's an obsession in my family. We come from Liverpool, therefore we're Liverpool supporters. But again, well, not everyone's perfect, watch, John. It's all right. Uh, I go down and watch Hayes and Yeti United. And, and I, if you, people are interested, go on my Twitter and you'll see one of the best goals scored at Hayes I saw that, that I've yeah. ever seen. It was Salah-like, I tell you, from yeah. the other night against Harrowborough. So football... Family, theatre. I do um, sailing. I've got a small dinghy, 15-foot dinghy. I sail around on Norfolk Broads. And I'm learning the trombone. I've been learning the trombone for the last couple of years. Uh, when are you going to be ready to do a performance for us live? Uh, on years to come. Years <laughs> to come. After the neighbours stop petitioning the council <laughs> about the noise. What about favourite music? What kind of music do you like? All sorts. I'm into... Obviously, my generation from Liverpool is the Beatles and all that sort mm. of stuff, you know? Um, but I'm into all sorts. And... 
I, and again, the Irish music uh, that from from the from the, the past and all the rest. But I, I literally am in, into everything. What I found amazing, you know, when we run in our campaigns, the people that were coming forward, like Stormzy and others. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Us, yeah, the Stormzy just introduced you to a, to a new world. Really. I'm increasing. I, because I'm learning the trombone, you know, I I I just impressed with people in the in you know brass bands and things like that and in jazz as a Soweto Kinch is just mm -hmm. a phenomenal jazz player I went to see him at a, a, a gig a, a few months back and it was just absolutely phenomenal the way he mixes sound and music and voice is, mm -hmm. there's experimentation out there in music I think at the moment is more exciting than it's ever been and favorite food what kind of food do you like food yeah um my wife's going so i really like going curries um because of the coconut taste and whatever wish wash down with a, a bit of fainy as well mm -hmm. so i'm you know what our area is like all the food yeah, in the brilliant. world is here yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah we've often had uh we've often had a shared a few curries which have been uh, amazing right so i'm going to end the interview as i do with a lot of people uh we had this with becky long bailey as well there's a old questionnaire uh, from a french series called ballon de culture hosted by bernard pavot so i asked everyone this it's the first thing that comes to your mind john and this will be how we end the show what is your favorite word happy what is your least favorite word sad what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally Ken Loach films at the moment. And what turns you off? Oh dear. Sitting in the in the House of Commons. <laughs> I love that. Story speeches. Yeah, trust me, it turns me off watching that as well. Uh, what is your favourite current swear word? Oh no, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> All right, well... Milani, you're trying to <laughs> set me up, you are. All right, we'll move. What sound or noise do you love? Um, running water. Oh, I like that. That's a good one. I've not heard that one. And what side or noise do you hate? Reach on a window, nails on a window pane. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Good idea. Theatre direction, I think. You would be good at that. I was going to say theatre because I, I know you like a bit of theatre and I think you'd be really good at that. What profession would you not like to do other than your own? <laughs> <laughs> You can't say I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. City speculator. I love that. Okay. Thank you so much. John McDonald MP, um, I'm going uh, to give you uh, the, the plaudits because I know you'll never give it to yourself. One of the most influential uh, people in politics, certainly in my, in my life, who've introduced me into politics, but also one of the best MPs. And I think if, if half of the members of parliament uh, could be as passionate and as caring for their local community as you, I think we would have a much better society, a much better government. Uh, it's been fascinating to learn more about you, your journey, and certainly into the Corbyn years, and I hope people get a new angle and perspective in what I think is one of the best public servants this country has ever had. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. Edit out the boring bits, Alex. <laughs> I think it was all really, really good. John McDonald MP, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, this has been one of our new series that we're starting which is the long form interviews uh with influential passionate important uh, and new voices uh, from around the country uh, i've been ali milani your host on politics uncensored you can follow us at politics foobar on instagram twitter and on tiktok uh join us next week as we go back to regular scheduled programming on politics uncensored thank you so much everybody salams